Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. We're in chapter 2 this morning. Now, we were introduced to the book uh, under rather sober circumstances. Uh, The people of Israel are in Egypt and they are oppressed. We read in the opening verses that Joseph and his brothers, all the sons of Jacob, have now died and their entire generation has passed away. And on top of things, there's a new Pharaoh in Egypt who doesn't remember Joseph. Whether that was intentional or if he just had never heard of him, I think we know a little more. And so we begin the book of Exodus under a cloud of suffering. The people of God are captives. The people of God are slaves in Egypt. And we could be asking ourselves the question, at least in the opening verses, what now? Has God abandoned his people? Could death, could suffering, could opposition put an end to God's promise of offspring and blessing? But we know how the story goes, don't we? And so the answer is, Obviously not. No, God in his supreme wisdom was waiting for the perfect moment, for the perfect time, even against hostile circumstances, slavery and genocide, they become instruments, instruments, tools in the unfolding cogs of God's eternal plan for this particular time in history. And the same grand theme we see unfolding once again today in chapter 2. God's mysterious ways begin to unfold in circumstances we wouldn't dream for ourselves. Now let me say this, I generally enjoy doing some DIY. I'm a guy who likes to kind of do stuff. Uh, there are two mitigating factors though that, that, that often get in the way. And one is time. I need time, and, and my wife reminds me that you've not finished what you started. And so my excuse is I, I need some more time. And, and when she says, no, you've got time, well, I, I need to balance my time. You know, I need to balance it between exercise and DIY. But generally, I enjoy DIY. I, I like to build things. I like to make things. The other mitigating factor is not just time, but tools. And, and this, is where, this is where often my wife feels my frustration because I'll be in the middle of making something or cutting something or, or putting something into the wall and I don't have the right tools. And it's incredibly frustrating. And so I, I, I scramble around, I'm breaking drill bits. I'm, and, and generally how it goes is, is it usually ends up like this. When you don't have the right tool for the job, get the hammer, right? Just get the hammer. And, 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 if, and if you still can't get it right, then get a bigger hammer. That's generally how DIY ends up going. But we know better, don't we? We know that we actually need the right tool for things to go smoothly, for things to work. In order to have the proper outcome, it requires the right time and the right tools. You know, growing up, I really loved watching MacGyver. Anybody remember MacGyver? I mean, that guy could build a bomb with a pocket knife and chewing gum. It was just (laughs) phenomenal, explosive chewing gum. It's just next-level stuff. I mean, he could fix anything with stuff he would just rummage around finding. 
In today's story, we're going to read one of the most recognizable Christian stories of all time. And God really is the hero of the story. But in being the hero of the story, he uses instruments. He uses people. He uses tools to accomplish his purposes. And at best, if we really step back and think about it, in our lives, in our stories, in our journeys, we're all just instruments in God's big picture. We're all being used. God, in a sense, is the ultimate MacGyver. And we're just tools at his disposal. And he uses us. Here's the thing. He uses us in ways we could never have imagined. Even sometimes our darkest days are actually tools that he's using to light someone else's life. So, let's jump into our text. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to read and then I'm going to talk and then we'll draw out some application and some points. We're going to open the story with a marriage, when a man loves a woman. Verse 1 and 2. Now, Moses writes, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Not usually what you do for a beautiful boy. You put him on display. But actually what we know about the story is that this is actually a rather brave move. And the reason it's a brave move, well, it seems like a common story. You know, let's find a wife, let's get married, let's have children. However, in this context, this was an incredibly brave endeavor. And the reason for that is because of what happened just before in chapter 1, verse 22. We read this. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, commanded all his people that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so there was a decree of genocide that every male child born to a Hebrew family would immediately be cast and drowned or eaten by a crocodile in the Nile. Now, given that, we read verse 1 and 2. A man pursues a woman, marries her, has a child. With this decree over your head, what's going on? This is, this is a marriage with the backdrop of death behind it. Moses, we are told, is born into a world of screaming babies. And these are not screams of joy, but screams of anguish. As Egyptian soldiers are, are, are ripping young children away from their parents and literally throwing them to the crocodile. Or drowning them in the great Nile. We are told here that Moses was born to a Levite family. This is going to become significant as we journey later on through this book. Both of his parents were from the same tribe. We also don't see this in the text, but it's worth mentioning that Moses actually had two other siblings already. And so Moses' parents had 
two kids prior to Moses. Miriam was born first, and at this stage of the story, we are told, scholars tell us that Miriam was around seven years of age, and Aaron, who was about three, a little boy. So they had a daughter and they had a son, and then thirdly, along came Moses. Now, what we know is that this decree was not out yet, this threat of genocide, and so they would have gladly brought Miriam and Aaron into life and have nurtured him, but now what are we going to do with Moses? And so they hide him. Like any parent would, hide him. And it's into this cruel darkness that this baby Moses is born. Into this darkness of evil, into this threat of death, God chooses for Moses to be born at this time. What? I mean, come on, God. Why not just choose Aaron or Miriam? At least now they're older. They're not, they don't have the threat. Why now? What's up with your timing, God? But when it comes to God, timing and tools get used in different ways. You see, because what's going to happen here is that Moses actually is born at the right time. Not according to our understanding. And Moses is born into the right family. And his birth becomes the forerunning for the birth of a whole nation. Listen, every family is unique in its own way. Every family has a unique parent situation. Every family has a unique culture, unique smells, unique this and that. But this was a very unique family scenario. We are told that Moses' mom looked upon him and said that he was a fine child. You could interpret that as saying he was a beautiful boy. But the word here in the Hebrew doesn't necessarily lead us towards thinking he was good looking. What it means is there was something different about him. There was a strange uniqueness. He was beautiful in a different way. In his manner, in his character, although he was a baby, there was something special about this child. In fact, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 verse 20, we read this where they're talking about this particular incident. And the text tells us that Moses was beautiful in God's eyes. And so there was something unique. In fact, some of the Jewish scholars, rabbis, used to write of this narrative. And some of their conclusions regarding the beauty of Moses was that they said this. They said that Moses must have been born circumcised. It was such a big and important thing for them. And so Moses' mom decides to do everything she can to hide him. And she hides him. She manages to do it for three months. But let's read on. The next point is mini ark. Moses is hidden. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the bank, river bank. And his sister, Miriam, stood at a distance To know what would be done to him. Well, Mo's mom has been doing everything she can. But realistically, he's now getting big, right? 
it's difficult to hide a bigger, bustling, beautiful boy. And his cries are getting louder and his needs are getting more. And it's getting harder and harder to hide him. And as a Hebrew woman, she would have been distraught. She would have heard the knocks at the door. She would have, she would have had the, the, the torches kind of shining into their rooms at night as, as soldiers were seeking out newborn boys. And it got to the point where she would have been crying out to God. God, what must I do? God, what must I do? And scholars tell us that she was led. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we get some great insights that what what she does here is not just a, a, a throwing of the dice. This isn't just some random event that actually she might have thought back upon their own history and have considered what God did for Noah. How did God save Noah? And by faith, she reenacts, she builds a mini ark. And this word here, basket, made of bulrushes and built with bitumen and pitch, it, it, some of that language is, is the exact language that we read of concerning Noah and his ark. And so no doubt there is some bravery and yet some skill and then a large amount of trust. As she weaves this basket, and I think there must have been floods of tears, to the point where eventually she places her boy into this little ark, Big Mo in a mini ark. And sometimes we have the wrong idea. We kind of picture kind of her going down to this rushing mighty river, and she releases the boy, and, and off he goes. But no, she actually puts him amongst the reeds. And by faith, she releases him into the mouth of the enemy. Hoping beyond hope that God would save. So did she do this in faith? Well, I think in hindsight, we can all say, yes. Yes, she did this in faith. What a a move of faith. What an act of faith. But I think in the moment... It was a radical step of hope, which isn't far from faith. And additionally, as she walks away, what does she do? She stations Miriam. She says, Miriam, I want you just to hide over here and I want you to watch. Just just let me know what happens. Let's move on as the story moves on. Lost property. Look who finds Moses. Verse 5. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Gosh. If it could. I mean, you can imagine Miriam. Of all people, Lord. The daughter of Pharaoh. I mean, come on. She must have been thinking, no, 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 please. Go bath somewhere else. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she drowned it. Is that what it says? No. She took it. When she opened it, 
she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took his life. Is that what it says? No, she took pity. She took pity on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, suddenly, she's like, she's not doing what I thought she would do. The daughter of Pharaoh, this heartless king, this heartless king who has ordered young children, young boys to be killed mercilessly, she's not like her dad. She's not heartless. She has heart. God is at work here. Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, so suddenly she appears. She's, 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 she's very interested in to know what's going on. His sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. I will pay you to do it. So the woman, Moses' mom, took the child and nursed him. I mean, I think that Pharaoh's daughter here has to be one of the nicest pagans you will ever meet. But this is, this is God's doing. We have to see the hand of God in this. Under the darkest of circumstances, under the most risky situation, we see God's hand, don't we? Instead of acting like her dad, she acts with pity. She has compassion. There is compassion in her heart. We need to remember this. Because Moses, as he grows older, is filled with the same compassion. And so there is Moses lying there in his little ark, appears to be abandoned by his family, and yet the Lord will never forsake his people. I think what we need to know here is that God is moving. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. God is at work. Can you, can you just imagine how this would have gone down for Miriam? The daughter of a murderous king of all people for Moses to fall into her hands. I just want to say something on the side here about sometimes how God uses the most unlikely people. God can use unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. He does it all the time. And sometimes I have a problem with Christians because we have this weird us versus them mentality that God can only use Christians. And if anyone's not a Christian, then God can't use them to, 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 to accomplish his purposes. And so we, we think that, no, they're too wicked or they're too evil. But here we see God using this pagan worshiper to bring about his purposes. Don't get me wrong, they're, they're not saved in the process. But God is big enough to orchestrate this in His ways. 
So how does the story end? Well, we go up to verse 10. And we read here about dual citizenship. Because Moses grows up both in a Hebrew and in an Egyptian household. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she, this is Moses' mom, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She, the Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses. The pagan woman names her him Moses. Because, here's her reason, she said, I drew him out of the water. And so Moses grows up with dual citizenship. He's both a member of the Hebrew family, but he's also an adopted member of the Egyptian king. So for his foundational years, he is nurtured by his Hebrew mother, and then in God's foolish plan, he's adopted by the king of Pharaoh, his daughter, I'm thinking to myself, imagine how this would have gone down. Imagine Moses' mom walking around the streets, because that would have had to have happened, now that she's been entrusted with nursing him. There's a woman, there's a Hebrew woman walking the streets in Egypt, holding a baby. No doubt people would have come up to this Hebrew woman and said, what a beautiful big girl you have. Right? Because there were just no baby boys around. What a beautiful girl you have. And, and, and then she would have been saying, well, actually, he's a boy. And they would be like, what? How? Well, actually, I'm just nurturing him for a season. He's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. All this to say, guys, God, God's ways are not our ways. I hope you're seeing this. God's time and God's tools get used in mysterious ways. And then in verse 10, it says, She named him Moses because she drew him out of the water. The name Moses literally means drawn out. Drawn out. And it becomes a foreshadowing of, of his mission, his purpose in life will be to draw out the people of Israel out of Egypt. And we're going to get to that wonderful narrative. And in many ways, he prefigures and points us to Christ, who will ultimately draw us out and the whole nation with him of believers. And so Moses grows up with dual citizenship under the divine providence of God. God is preparing him. God is protecting him. God is educating him. To become one of the greatest leaders in the nation of Israel. I want to just close with a couple of thoughts. The first thing I want us to see here is the important place of woman in God's plan. In chapter 1, remember it was two Hebrew midwives, wasn't it? Two Hebrew midwives that disobeyed the king because they feared the Lord and they refused to kill babies at birth. Two midwives who were named. Now in chapter 3, it's three more women 
who are fulfilling God's divine plan. We've got Moses' mother, we've got Moses' sister, and we've got Pharaoh's daughter. May we never think that there is no room in God's plans for women. Now, I know in today's context and in today's world, there is this resurgence around empowering women in the workplace and equal pay, etc., etc. And I'm all for understanding and seeing the value of women in terms of life and ministry. However, we do still see that it's Moses who leads God's people out of Egypt. And so we don't want to come to the wrong conclusions. We want to come to the right conclusions. God uses male and female for His glory in different ways. And we are both equal and valuable in His eyes. God is using women here significantly in powerful ways. And I want to say to the ladies here today, God wants to use you, not just in the church, but in the marketplace and in the workspace. God wants to use you for His purposes. And it doesn't have to be in a man's role. You don't have to have that. Where you are, with your personality, with your gifting, with, with who God's made you to be. Be you. Be who God's designed you to be. Don't strive to be someone else. Don't strive to be a man. That's the last thing you should want to strive to be. Strive to fulfill God's image-bearing purpose for you. God has always used male and female in His purposes. Notice the irony. Notice the irony of Pharaoh's genocide decree. What did he he decree? He decreed that all the male children should be killed, thinking, thinking that, well, what can come of the daughters of Hebrew women? Oh, did it bite him. The irony. Kill, Kill the male children, let the women live. God has his way. And then, secondly, as we journey through Exodus, we're going to see some impossible situations. Impossible situations that you're kind of thinking, well, there is no tool that can come close to fixing this. There's no tool available. There's never been a tool designed that could fix the situation. And I want to say to us, we are learning very quickly here that God can use the unlikeliest of tools. God uses instruments like tragedy. God uses instruments like victory, like tears of joy and pain. Believers and non-believers, individuals and nations, children and adults, midwives and kings. He uses all these things to accomplish his saving purpose. Notice that this is a mixture. We've got both genders. We've got both young and old. But it's not just all good things. God is able to use even bad things to bring about his purpose. I want to end with a quote from a scholar. And I don't know, there's something about this quote that I just love. 
And I think maybe it's the reference to Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel has this wonderful vision, and it's a complex vision, and he sees all these different images, and one of the images he has is, is of spinning wheels. And the problem with these spinning wheels is they're all overlapping, and they're intersecting, and they're spinning within one another, and it's really complex, and there's wheels within wheels, and they're all spinning in different directions, but he never tells us really what they are. And we begin to discover a little bit later on in the, in the prophet's writings, what he's talking about. And this commentator refers to it here. And I think it just makes so much sense. He says this. He says, there are wheels within wheels in the government of God. Meaning God's rule. There are wheels within wheels. He makes use of an endless variety of agencies in the accomplishment of his unsearchable designs. The pharaohs, the famine, the midwives, the pharaoh's daughter, the bulrushes in the Nile, etc. are all at his sovereign disposal. And all are made instrumental in the development of his stupendous counsels. We delight to dwell upon these things. To range through the wide domain of providence and to see in all the machinery which an all-wise and almighty God is using for the purpose of his redeeming love. That's the God we serve. He's all-wise and almighty. I want to say this. We can entrust our lives into the basket of his care. There's that weird saying about being a basket case. Eh? If, if God is who he says he is, and he is who he says he is, then I'm saying I'm a basket case. I need him. God, you, you've got wheels within wheels, and I'm going to entrust my whole life to you. Yes, I've made mistakes, and I've messed up, and there, there might have been dark days, and there might have been evil days, and there might have been sin, and who knows, I'm a basket case, but God has wheels within wheels, and he has a way to redeem. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this incredible narrative, which is just so rich and revealing and so instructive of your ways, Lord. Your ways which are not our ways. Your thoughts which are not our thoughts. Lord, we thank you that you are the almighty, all-wise, sovereign God. And you use all sorts of things to bring about your plans and your purposes. And even when we mess up, Lord, and even when we make big mistakes... And we think that this cannot be reversed. Or how could this ever change? Or what good could ever come from this? Lord, we see that you have a way and you have a means. And you have a way and you have a people. And you have a time and you have a tool that is perfect for every circumstance. Help us. Help us, Lord, to trust. Help us, Lord, to, to, to build a basket in a sense. And to place our own lives into it. And to say, Lord, here I am. I entrust myself to you. Do with me according to your will. 
Let your will be done in my life. Shape me, mold me, try me, test me. But one thing I know is you'll never forsake me. Nothing can separate me. As a child of God, nothing can separate me from your love. Lord, you give and you take away. But our hearts will always choose to say, you are worthy. Blessed be your name. Amen.